Welcome to the June 27th ASF Weekly Science Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about social robots and the built environment for autism. First, social robots, what are they? Personally, when I think of a robot, I think of C-3PO, or actually, if I'm to be honest with you, I think more about Rosie from the Jetsons. But unlike Rosie from the Jetsons, social robots are not just supposed to do stuff for you. They're supposed to do stuff with you. So in the context of helping people with autism, social robots are actually defined as physically embodied agents that have some or full autonomy and engage in social interactions with humans by communicating, cooperating, and making decisions. This is C-3PO and Rosie. They've been shown to be helpful in educating children and youth on the autism spectrum in various domains, including things like attention, learning, behavioral regulation, and restrictive and repetitive patterns of behaviors. One research study classified robots based on their appearance as human-inspired, animal-inspired, imaginary, or man-made objects and functional robots like drones. Robot platforms benefit from the capacity to represent familiar social cues to children and young people in a controlled environment, like facial features such as eyes. Technological advances have also enabled humanoid robots to represent a wide range of human-like functions. So these emergence of social robots brings an opportunity so that Innovative technologies can be further used to aid the development of skills in children and young people on the autism spectrum through play and interaction that might positively affect the learning process. And because rapid developments in technology means they can be more personalized, the heterogeneity of all the strengths and challenges of people on the spectrum can be addressed. Come to the technology demo at INSAR every year and you can see these things in action. Typically, these robots are like a social interface with the head and the eyes expressing emotions via facial expression. They become a storyteller, they imitate, and they do things to attract eye gaze or facilitate a conversation. Typically, a play partner controls the robot via computer, but sometimes it's fully autonomous and it can play independently without the guidance of an adult partner. So what is the problem with all these studies? Well, just like a lot of them, they're small and they have a range of methodology. So it's time to do a systematic review and meta-analysis. A systematic review takes all the information and rates it on the quality of the study, as well as taking away the key findings. The meta-analysis takes the actual data and combines it across studies with similar methodology and then looks at effect sizes as a whole. If the community wants to know, does it even work a little bit, these social robots? They need to do a systematic review. And like with everything with autism, we need to know whether it will work in some people, even if it doesn't work on everyone, and what controls that effect, and on what core autism features does it actually target. 
the, so the study started out with about 2,000 studies that they filtered down to 34. Now, they filtered these down because maybe they weren't related to autism. There were overlaps. It wasn't a research study. It was like an opinion or a blog. They found these through the internet, or they found them from the references of the studies that they targeted as being relevant. Here's something. Out of that 34, only about 20% reported the race and ethnicity of the participants. Uh, nope, don't do that. Another less than half reported intellectual or cognitive ability. Uh, uh, don't do that either. Now, those are the original studies. It doesn't reflect the systematic review. The systematic review was the one that pulled out the fact that they weren't reporting things like demographics, race, and intellectual ability. If you don't do this, if you don't report these things, it becomes difficult to understand what supports and interventions and treatments help what people, or if they just help people with a certain profile, but you would never know because you didn't look at that. So there were different types of robots used in the analysis. Like I mentioned, some look like animals. They were called animaloid. For example, there was a dog robot, there was a chicken robot, and there was an elephant robot. There were also some other ones. There was a plant robot, and there was also a robo robotic arm. Some of the studies used randomized control trial designs, and some used non-randomized control trials. If there was no control arm, they were likely using all sorts of different types of robots or different types of interventions, so those were studied separately. The studies took place in autism centers or clinics, home, school, or other clinics and laboratories. For the meta-analysis, again, they only looked at the randomized control trials, and they found in the meta-analysis that the clinic was the best place to use the robots. But keep in mind here, those were what most of the studies did. So yes, they had the bigger effects, but there were more of them and more data. So it may not necessarily be the case. The environment used could also be better controlled in a clinic compared to home where there might be some more distractions. Doesn't mean that they don't work in the home. They also found that the robots improved social abilities, but didn't have an effect on emotional regulation or motor function. I know that's somewhat contradictory to the introduction I made, but again, that introduction was based on the individual studies, not them as a whole. When they looked at all of the studies as a whole or as a collection, they found that younger kids tended to benefit more than adolescents, but the length of the intervention itself wasn't as important. What was missing in the studies was whether or not the skills that were generated with the robots generalized to other settings. So if the robot was used in a clinic, did they translate out of the home? If there was little follow-up, which is also a problem across all autism research, what happens after the intervention is over? What happened a year after the intervention? Does the benefit cease? Do the interventions help in real life settings? This was a weakness of everybody. So not, I'm not picking on anyone in particular, but that's something scientists need to do better at. Finally, even though less than half of the studies reported IQ, those that did report IQ, it seemed that the robots were more beneficial in helping those with a higher IQ. Now again, this could be due to selection bias. If the studies excluded certain groups, we don't really know if they work in those groups or not. So despite all these problems, this is a really exciting area. 
there's more than one type of robot even. And I want to mention that ASF has been supporting a version of a social robot that's an interactive face on an iPad, an iPhone, and even better, an Android device that can be controlled by a parent or a clinician. The clinician begins a conversation or engages the child through a face and a voice, a phone or another device that the child has, and becomes an interactive partner. If it's a small phone, you slip it into a toy, preferably one like a, with a large mouth, like a shark, and then the toy becomes a robot. The device is called PeerBot, so you can Google it, and you could even download a previous version of the app in the App Store. It's being improved now. The programmers are working out some of the kinks, and the final version should be ready in a few months. Again, it's called PeerBots. And while PeerBots has not been tested in empirical study, it has been shown to be effective in educational settings like art school for kids with developmental delays. Check it out. We're encouraged by the success of other social robots and hope that this freely available app can be used by clinicians and teachers or even parents to help with some sort of neutral communication to their child. Now, the second review I want to mention is around a question that we get asked about a lot, which is how do you build an environment for autistic people that is helpful? Schools, homes, how do you make them more comfortable? My friends in Australia, Melissa Black and Sonia Girdler, did a review of the published research in this area. If you recognize their names, they're at Curtin University, and they were co-authors on the employment policy brief. Shout out to Curtin University and the collaborators at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, specifically Sven Bolte. They did another important review of the literature and focused on, of course, the built environment that's relative to autism, and they described aspects of the built environment, architecture, or interior design that was particularly helpful. Now, this didn't include city planning and land use or telecommunications. So in other words, it's not going to advise you on where to put a cell tower. Thank you very much. They found that most of the studies were qualitative. That is, they had descriptions and not actual numbers, but there were a few that were quantitative, which used numbers. In fact, there were a total of 28 studies. These studies went over things like the layout of a building, the walls, the entrances, and the orientation. They also talked about lighting, light intensity, sound, and building materials. They also focused on things like windows, patterns, texture, and clutter. And of course, it's important to everyone, no matter where you are on the spectrum, the issue of temperature. So what did they find? Email me if you want a copy of this article. First, they found that, of course, there's no one-size-fits-all design. The design considerations may provide ideas and guidance, but it shouldn't be an all or none of it. You can do some of it based on the needs of the particular person or the group that you're helping. You really know your child best. In this way, they suggest that people who are going to live there have a say in some way. What does that person prefer? What do they respond to? This is difficult in classrooms where there's lots of different kids, so of course engage as many as possible and their caregivers, but it's not going to be perfect. Please engage people, but realize that it may not be completely perfect. The third thing is the majority of the studies felt that lower ceilings were better. They should have multiple entries and exits, dimmable lights, use natural materials like cork, cotton, and porcelain. Try not to have any loud noises or rooms facing the street if it's a lo long, busy street. 
reducing sound intensity thresholds, like keeping it to 50 decibels or lower is helpful. And one way may to do this may be to group rooms together according to the sound levels and use transitional areas, also soundproof if possible. Fourth, they recommended natural light and non-fluorescent bulbs. Keep the windows high to avoid distractions that all kids have about looking out the window at the birds. This isn't exclusive to autism. I'm not saying put the windows near the ceiling, but maybe in some rooms keep them a little higher. Five, use mild colors and low arousal colors. No bright pink, for example. Don't use reflective surfaces or bright colors. Avoid complexity on the color palette. Large patterns of brightly colored flowers may be good for a South Beach, Miami hotel lobby, but not for an environment with autistic people. However, some studies did have good luck with mixing colors between rooms so that they're color-coded. It doesn't have to be all one beige blob, just no brights, no bolds, or complicated designs. Six, as I mentioned before, no clutter. Seven, minimize texture, although carpets are good. I'm now thinking of wallpaper in the house I was raised in. It had silver mirror reflective backgrounds with velour patterns. Obviously that would be a no-no. Trust me, we moved into that house and we didn't change it for years because of the costs, but it was really awful and it was assaulting to my family. Lastly, try to minimize smells. This is something we all aspire to. This can include not using certain cleaning products or not using certain materials that emit an odor. Some of these things, like moving a window, may be a huge project. Others, like rearranging the spaces and changing light bulbs, may not be such a big deal. We need to use this paper to advocate for some of the accommodations in homes, hospitals, schools, clinical settings, doctor's offices, everywhere, so they can be more comfortable for people across the spectrum. Now, the article is likely to be helpful to multiple audiences, so send me an email and I'll send you the full article. It's under a paywall in the journal Autism, but we will not tell anyone. Shh. So thank you for listening to this week. Talk to you soon. I'm not going to talk to you next week because next week the United States will be celebrating the 4th of July. Now, I'm not going to lie. This is a tough 4th of July for people that live in the U.S. It's been a tough week for the citizens of the United States and especially women. I want to share that my friend Luke Rosen from the KIF1A Foundation wrote an amazing blog. It's going to be posted on the podcast summary on asfpodcast.org. So happy 4th, and I'll talk to you on the 11th. Don't worry, don't